Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I don't know about you, but I have a long list of books that I think I really should read or that I want to read. It was in this connection that I was particularly glad to learn about Blinkist. Well, hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I don't know about you, but I have a long list of books that I think I really should read or that I want to read. It was in this connection that I was particularly glad to learn about Blinkist. What Blinkist does is it takes thousands of best-selling nonfiction books and it distills them down to their most important elements so that you can read or listen to them in under 15 minutes and you can do it on your phone or your portable device. I listen to Blinkist while I'm working at my computer doing the kind of thing that really doesn't involve my brain. The Blinkist library is massive. It has 2,500 titles and they're always adding new ones. There are a lot of classics, you know, for example, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And there are also a lot of Amazon bestsellers on it. For example, there's a book called The Subtle Art of Not Giving. I I can't say this on the air, but it's a word that starts with F. And then there are a lot of history books that I think that you, as listeners to New Books in History, would be very interested in. For example, there's David Christian's. I'm a big David Christian fan. Origin Story, A Big History of Everything. Daniel Ellsberg, you know who Daniel Ellsberg is. He wrote a book called The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner, which is fascinating. I listened to that on Blinkist. And then there are a lot of biographies. I really like listening to biographies on Blinkist. Alexander the Great by Philip Freeman. Genghis Khan by Jack Weatherford. Leonardo da Vinci by Walter Isaacson. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for the NBN audience. If you go to Blinkist.com slash newbooks, you can start a free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash newbooks to start a free seven-day trial. You can cancel any time. Blinkist.com slash new books. And they will sign you up, and you can find out whether this is something that you would enjoy. I know that I enjoy it, and I highly recommend it to you. I hope you enjoyed the following interview. and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm talking with Peter Heather about his book on the wars of the Eastern Roman Empire in the 6th century, entitled Rome Resurgent, War and Empire in the Age of Justinian. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. It's a great pleasure to be here. It's a great pleasure to have you. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Uh, Yep. Um, I'm now 58 years old. That always comes as a surprise. That's when I start talking to students and comparing things and realizing I have to stick another decade on how long ago it was uh, that makes me realize how old I am. I am, in fact, a modern historian gone backwards, not a classicist. So I come out of a sort of comparative historical uh, background. I've briefly did other things, but I've basically been a university teacher all my life. Uh, I'm currently Professor of Medieval History at King's College, London. 
you're very well known for having written books about the late Roman and early uh, medieval period. What was it that led you to write this book about the wars of Justinian? It's a part of a sort of broader project. I've been thinking about uh, the sort of way that um, historiography works and has been working over the last sort of scholarly generation. Uh, and if you look at academic history, there's been uh, a strong uh, disinclination to talk about institutions and politics. There's been tremendous emphasis on cultural history. And don't get me wrong, uh, there's nothing uh, bad about cultural history. And in fact, the reason why everyone has been talking about it over the last generation is that people hadn't talked about it enough and that it's very crucial to understanding uh, historical transformations um, to see the importance played by cultural structures and their transformation. But I've become uh, increasingly of the opinion that all of these kind of cultural transformations are negotiated through political processes that take place in particular institutional contexts. And what I'm starting to do in the Justinian book, and it's part of a broader project, as I mentioned, is to rethink or retool political and institutional history uh, within now the more sophisticated context of cultural history. In other words, to reaffirm in uh, an upgraded way the importance of politics and of institutions uh, that the old ways of doing those kinds of things maybe have been um, rightly debunked, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do them. You've just got to do them better. One of the things you do with this at the beginning of the book is you lay out these institutions in a context that may not necessarily be familiar with listeners who are more conversant in, say, uh, the period of the Roman Republic or the early empire, what you describe there. Are institutions that are undergoing this, you know, transformation into their medieval forms. I was wondering if you could start us off by explaining a bit about the Eastern Roman Empire during the sixth century and, and, and these institutions which are uh, that uh, have changed so much and are so important to Justinian's success as emperor. Yes, I, I think the, the sort of real big difference between the early empire and the 6th century empire that you see under Justinian uh, is its taxation structure. Um, if you look at comparative government, then you basically see that uh, what pre-modern governments do fundamentally is wage war. They do not have the budgets to do anything else. Um, the, the astonishing majority, I mean, most people think somewhere between two-thirds and three-quarters of uh, taxation is spent on making war. And that would be true, actually, of pretty much any pre-modern state. So the whole uh, institutional structure is geared around generating enough tax revenue to fund the army. And the later empire, the empire of Justinian, compared to the uh, empire of um, the Julio-Claudians of Nero or whatever, that faces uh, many more military threats. So its military establishment has to be much higher. Uh, and that being so, its taxation structures have to be more uh, interfering, more direct. So 
uh, as I see it, the big difference is that you have this much more uh, developed governmental spine connecting local and central government or local and or local societies maybe uh, and central government, which is all about finding the revenues to maintain the necessary military forces. And that reorients what local political life is all about. It, it creates a different context for local political engagement. The uh, politically important classes are landowners. Uh, they are responsible for paying and even for making sure that other people pay the taxes. Uh, and they obviously want to make their position as advantageous as possible for themselves within this structure that exists. So I think it sort of redefines the way in which local landowners engage with state structures. In the early days, you had self-governing cities that just paid a very small portion of their revenues over to the center and were left to govern themselves. Later, empire needs much more money than that and therefore interferes much more directly, and that just changes the nature of the relationship. How do these local figures interact with the central structure? Uh, in what ways do they do they have their concerns expressed? Because, it, as you explained, it's, it's not entirely top down. They, the emperors can't simply say produce, produce this much, and landowners just have to accept that. No, they can't. Um, this uh, this state is vast. I mean, even if you look at it on the map. Uh, it's very large. It runs from uh, what's now uh, northern Iraq uh, all the way through Turkey, uh, Greece and the Balkans, uh, Egypt, Libya. Then after uh, Justinian's conquest, it adds into that um, Tunisia or uh, North Africa and all of Italy as well. So this is a very big state. And of course, it's it, in functional terms, it's actually much bigger than it looks. I mean, it would look big enough if you just look at the modern map, but everything moves much more slowly. Um, the sort of average land speed in the Roman, well, in pre-modern times in general, certainly in the Roman world, is about 25 miles a day. Um, and if you think about how fast you travel over land now, you basically have to think that that state is... Well, you can easily travel 250 miles a day now, so that's, that means that the state, in functional terms, and how long it takes you and me to get from place to place, it's 10 times bigger than it looks. So it is absolutely vast. And you can't govern that in a sort of centralized way. The, uh, they don't have the capacity to store and process the information about all the local communities that, um, in practice, uh, the empire is composed of and which are, in practical terms, so far away from the imperial capital. What you have to do, therefore, is co-opt local landowners into running their local communities in a way that will work for the central government, that produces enough money. So there has to be a kind of um, swapping of favors, if you like. The landowners have to kind of accept that it's reasonable for them to pay this cash. They are getting something out of the relationship and they have to get things in return. Um, and that's, it, it really is still a form of licensed 
decentralized government, although it looks more centralized, it's not that much more centralized in practice, I think. You mentioned that the threats that the uh, this empire faced were far greater than they had been in the past. I was wondering if you could elaborate upon that and explain exactly what sort of threats were they dealing with uh, in the early 6th century? Yes, uh, there, there are two sort of major frontiers that are problematic um, for the East Roman Empire. First of all, uh, on its eastern frontier, it's got uh, a very large peer empire. The Persian Empire of the 5th and 6th, well, even the 3rd, 4th, 5th and 6th century, uh, is pretty much a peer empire, a peer power. It's peer superpower, I think, is the term of art for the Roman Empire. It's a bit like China is already and is going to be for the Western world. And, you know, it's a fact of life. Um, Persia reorganized itself uh, in the third century. It's basically what's called Persia is actually Iran and most of Iraq uh, combined as one unit. So if you think about that, and a bit of Syria as well, if you think about that in modern terms, you can see that that's a very powerful entity. Um, and from the moment of that reorganization of of the Persian Empire into a more effective kind of state, then uh, at least one third of the Roman military establishment had always to be pointed in a Persian direction. Persia wasn't, didn't think it could necessarily conquer Rome, but it would certainly take advantage of any uh, moments of uh, stress that the Roman Empire faced in order to advance its position um, and there were various areas that it could look to win advantages over. So that's one big threat. What you've also got is that the uh, European context had changed uh, beyond measure from the early imperial period. Um, Persia had always been a pain in the neck for Rome in some ways. It's a slightly bigger pain in the neck than it had been under the early empire. What has really changed is, uh, if you're thinking about sort of... Um, strategic context is the strategic context in Europe. Um, there's a process of demographic and economic development that is steadily unfolding um, across the main European landscape in the first millennium AD, which makes Europe by the end of the first millennium unrecognizable from Europe at the start of it. There are many more people, uh, there are much more developed economies, and there are organized into much more robust political societies, which in turn uh, can act more effectively when faced with Roman imperial power. Basically, in the early imperial period, you know, there's nothing in Europe that poses any kind of threat to Roman power. But by the late imperial period, we have uh, substantial entities. They're not as powerful as Persia, but there are several of them. Um, and between them, they pose another major threat to um, the Roman strategic position, especially when they combine with the occasional pulses of large-scale migration that operate across the steppe landscape, Huns, Avars, the Magyars later on, Mongols eventually. But we're, we're getting these periodic pulses of population um, out of steppe lands by the late imperial period. 
you describe in the book how the uh, the fourth and fifth centuries don't go very well for Rome with regard to their confrontation with Persia in particular. You, you also mentioned that the the, the, the other uh, threat coming from these pulses is, is a challenge as well. And yet, at the start of the sixth century, when you um, when you, when you when you focus upon what's happening politically, it it, it seems that that you're you're seeing a uh, a bit of a, of a of a recovery taking place within the Eastern Roman uh, political state. I was wondering if you could uh, elaborate what was happening there with the emperors and and uh, what it was that Justinian was able to inherit when he took the throne. Yes, the the, the basically the first kind of major European crisis. Um, that the generated by the combination of the changing strategic situation and the intersection with nomad powers, which had unfolded in the late fourth century with the arrival of the Huns on the fringes of Europe, that had worked itself out by about the year five hundred. I mean, hundred. Uh, the Hunnic Empire of Attila had come and gone. Uh, a lot of the uh, frontier. Uh, European powers that had been moved around in the course of that crisis had established new kingdoms on what had been former Roman soil um, in the West. So the Western Empire had ceased to exist. But Roman, but East Rome, the, the eastern half of the Roman Empire run from Constantinople, had basically managed to export that problem. And by 500, the, the sort of energy and political chaos, political military chaos, generated by the Huns, had resulted in the disappearance of the western half of the Roman Empire, its replacement by a series of successor states built around uh, various of these frontier groups who'd been shunted onto western soil by the Huns. But the eastern empire's territory um, was broadly intact, and in particular that crisis had not touched uh, the key revenue-producing areas for Constantinople, which were um, Egypt, Syria, Palestine, Western Turkey, those are the really productive agricultural territories under Constantinople's control, and those had never been touched by the Hunnic crisis. So there were some hairy moments, um, like when uh, an earthquake unfolded in uh, 447, and the Huns are wondering if the walls of Constantinople have fallen down, there are some hairy moments, but broadly speaking, Constantinople keeps its uh, revenue base intact, and as the crisis dissipates, is able to restock its armies and indeed uh, respond to the crisis more positively to reestablish its strength. Persia had also faced um, a step-generated crisis in the same period, so actually Constantinople also benefited from that in the sense that you get a period of very peaceful relations between uh, Persia and Constantinople through most of those difficult years. So you have this situation which is beginning to turn in uh, Rome in in in, uh, in Constantinople's favor, and you also have this uh, succession of of, emperor, of two emperors, first uh, Justin and then Justinian, who are very or who, who are very successful and 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 in and very remarkable figures. I was wondering if you could explain how it was that they uh, they, they came to the throne and, and what their the what their experiences were about the politics they had to deal with within uh, Constantinople itself. Uh, yeah, the, it, it's surprisingly messy 
politics in Constantinople. Um, uh, it, it makes, uh, I think, Washington or Westminster look like a walk in the park, basically. Um, there's no clear system as to who should be emperor. Uh, we do get some dynastic succession, but we don't get consistent dynastic succession. And of course, sometimes dynasties run out of male heirs. So there are, you can get contenders for the, for the throne from a wide number of areas. And particularly when you uh, lose dynastic continuity, as you did in the middle of the fifth century, when the Theodosian dynasty runs out, then you start to find a lot of people trying their luck from time to time. Winning power in Constantinople is a tricky thing, uh, and holding on to it even trickier. So Justin, who is Justinian's uncle, is from uh, a pretty ordinary background. I mean, I think the, the sources report him just from a straightforward peasant background in the Balkans. But he rises through the military. He's basically a guards officer around the palace. Um, and when the previous emperor dies, there are three or four plausible contenders for the throne, including some of the nephews of the previous emperor. But the previous emperor had clearly not been powerful enough, not been able to designate his own successor. And it's a moment when decisive action and a bit of careful pre-preparation uh, could win the day. So... Justin nips in when the opportunity presents itself, seizes power for the instant, but then he has the business actually of securing himself on the throne, uh, of pressing the right buttons, of uh, winning support in the key areas, and of marginalizing and, if necessary, eliminating uh, key opponents at crucial moments. So... He takes the throne, and he doesn't. Uh, he, he's he does, he's not emperor for a, a especially long time. But I, I like the way you put it in the book. He does some of a lot of the political heavy lifting to pave the way for Justinian to succeed him. Yes, uh, that that I think is very interesting. If you compare Justin with his predecessor, uh, where his predecessor was not able or not willing to designate a successor. Uh, Justin uh, does designate and does pave the way for Justinian, who's his nephew, to succeed him. Uh, he promotes Justinian through the uh, key uh, offices, make sure he gets plenty of airtime. He also has to pass a special law because Justinian makes uh, what should have been an extremely disadvantageous marriage. He marries an actress. Actually, I'm married to an actress, too, so you know, I have a lot of sympathy to that. But um, uh, this required a special law. It's a bit like Edward and Mrs. Simpson in the 1930s, but worse. Uh, and Justinian is, I'm sorry, Justin is willing to go into bat for his nephew to the extent of changing the law to allow him to maintain his status and to marry uh, and to marry Theodora, the actress. No one would have batted an eyelid if Theodora had just been his mistress. That would have not worried anyone. It's the fact that he wants to marry her. Uh, 
uh, Justin also sanctions Justinian uh, for and uh, uh, allows him to remove the other possible contenders for throne for the throne. I mean, I, you're, you're very right to stress that Justin was not emperor for very long, uh, only about a decade, and he's pretty old when he becomes emperor. Uh, and I think that's part of the reason he is chosen and why people rally behind him. It's a bit like choosing uh, an old pope. You know they're not going to be there for too long, so they're a decent kind of compromised candidate in the face of we can't make up our mind and we don't want to pick someone who's going to be there for 30 years and really change things. Uh, but what Justin does is slowly but surely help his nephew uh, move the chess pieces around within the political world of Constantinople, such that Justinian can and does succeed his uncle. He takes over the throne, and he be and, and this is the beginning of one of the most remarkable reigns in, in, in Western history. And it's one in which he is going to fundamentally transform the face of the empire. What is it that's motivating him to do this, and how does he begin this project? Yeah, uh, it is a, an extraordinary reign, and it's so easy to take it for granted, I think. Um, these figures just, uh, this is one of the problems, I think, with the sort of lapse in time between the present um, and the past. It all happened such a long time ago that you don't think about it as living, breathing politics. So you don't think about it in the same way that you would think about uh, a ruler in or a some kind of uh, government leader in the modern day undertaking these a similar range of activities. You know, it, it, you, you take it for granted. You know, it's some strange world in the past. The fact that Justinian utterly rewrites all of Roman law, which is uh, profoundly important to the way everything is run, um, and conquers vast territories in the West. Well, that's just something that Roman emperors do. But uh, you need to think about the political pro I mean, this is what I meant about trying to think about political processes properly within the kind of context of cultural history uh, and the way that things have changed to try and understand what's going on and what's motivating him. I have to say, by the way, I really like how you did that in particular with Nika. When you're describing the uh, events surrounding what we nowadays call an attempted coup and how you contextualize that by by not just describing the politics, but talking about the effect of the massacres that took place in Constantinople and what that would mean if they happened on a similar scale in the modern day. And it really does you know, give a sense as to just how, uh, you know, how sometimes what might come across as, as stilted or, 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 or uh, you know, maybe a, a little distant uh, is, is in fact, you know, it was, was very real and very alive in, in ways we can understand it today. Yeah. I mean, it's an extraordinary event, you know, We've got two very reliable contemporary sources that tell us uh, over 20,000 people were killed. You know, that's a lot in anyone's numbers, but then you have to think about how much smaller the capital city was than modern capital cities. So in proportion, I mean, the, the population of Constantinople was probably maybe about half a million. So it's 20,000 out of uh, half a million. I mean, London's population now is more like 8 million, so it's the equivalent of, uh, uh, 
having set myself that problem, <laughs> 16, t- 16 times 20,000, which is uh, 320,000 people being killed in modern London. You know, that's the scale of it. It's bloody extraordinary, you know. And then there's all the damage that's done. The whole ceremonial center is burned down. It's like, you know, the mall in D.C. All of that would be flattened. Um, uh, and, and the Senate building as well. That would all be gone. The Capitol would be gone and all the museums. Um, and uh, actually the cathedral would be gone as well um, in Georgetown. The, that's the scale of the devastation or everything from Westminster and Whitehall in London. You know, this is utter catastrophe. Uh, if you think about what any government would look like that presided over that scale of disaster within its capital, uh, then you're starting really to think about this properly, I think. Uh, and what was interesting about the, that that uh, event was that it it it, it uh, is it pre, it uh, follows what are some initial military successes. I mean, just Justinian, as you explained, he starts out his reign very promisingly with his uh, his codification, his uh, early campaigns against the Persians. He really is, uh, you know, it's not like he it, they were they were trying to toss him out because he had necessarily failed. Well, that's right. Justinian knows that uh, uh, he's got hold of power, but staying there is not going to be easy. And he's basically trying to make himself politically untouchable. Uh, This is hard stuff, the best of times, as we know, just looking at modern political world. But in the Roman Empire, uh, it is supposedly God who appoints emperors. And of course, you can tell whether an emperor's appointed by God or not, because if an emperor is really appointed by God, well, he ought to be quite successful. You know, if you've got you know, almighty divine power behind it, should show itself. So uh, this is, I think, what's driving Justinian. He wants those early political successes. It's like the sort of, you know, you've got a bit longer than the, the famous hundred days that presidents have to set the tone for their uh, uh, presidency and stamp their authority over Washington, etc. You've got longer than that, but it's that kind of thing that he's engaged in, and and he he takes a double strategy, as you mentioned. Yeah, uh, major reform to legal structures. Everyone knew that those needed reforming, but no one really dared to do it because it's a total mare's nest to try and make that happen. And then also, he picks a fight with Persia. Um, he absolutely picks a fight with Persia. Um, and his the first major confrontation goes his way. Um, his general Belisarius wins uh, a victory that clearly surprised everyone. So it starts off, and he's smelling of roses. It's all looking good, but then the Persians get their own back, um, and then we get the Nica riot. So by the end of the Nica riot in sort of late winter, five three two, the regime is rocking. And yet, uh, in a bad sense, as it were. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not, not in the modern sense. <laughs> not in the modern sense. In the older sense, of, uh, rocking, yes. toppling, teetering, teetering. Shall we say that's better? And yet, it's at this point with with, with, with the regime. You know, at this at this uh, uh, maybe crisis point might be just a little too much, but but at this at this at this point, teetering point. Well, I, I don't know. The whole of Washington, D.C., smoking rubble? I don't think crisis <laughs> is too strong a word. 
Well, well, then then let's take that. This crisis point, Justinian then embarks upon this dramatic campaign. He's going to reconquer the West. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, This is, I think, this is a most exciting moment. Uh, Sort of older writing uh, believes the propaganda that Justinian puts out later after he wins this great victory in North Africa against the Vandals, which says, well, of course, I was always going to plan. I was always planning to conquer the West. This is, uh, this is my mission. My mission is to reconquer Rome, Rome's lost lands in the West. Uh, when you look at it, he approaches this uh, gamble with extreme caution. And it's only when... Um, everything just falls into place, that he risks it. Um, It's quite clear if you look at the detail, for instance, of this expeditionary force that he dispatches to North Africa, led by Belisarius, it had various levels of target in mind according to what it found on the ground once it got close to North Africa. Uh, I hadn't really thought about that until I was thinking about, again, the problem of command and control. You know, Belisarius can't ring up facts or telegraph Constantinople when he's sitting in Sicily deciding what his action plan has got to be. Um, In fact, he finds that circumstances are really favorable. The Vandal fleet was not in North Africa. It had been sent to deal with a rebellion in Sardinia, which the Vandals also controlled. and so uh, and a, a great substantial chunk of the Vandal army had gone with it. So there was a real moment of opportunity there. And Belisarius is able to grasp it. But you've also got to think he might have not. He, he didn't know about the, that rebellion when he left um, Constantinople. He didn't know that the Vandal fleet and half the army was going to be in Sardinia. He might have found that the Vandal fleet was still there. Uh, and when you reread the... Uh, sources with that in mind, then there are a couple of other smaller things that he would have been able to do instead of that. As it is, he's able to sit there, realize that there's a moment to be grasped, um, and like any good commander, uh, he grasps it. And the result is this extraordinary victory. Rome had tried reconquering um, Africa from the Vandals three times in the 5th century, uh, at all three times it ended in utter disaster, suddenly Belisarius is able to do it in six months. <laughs> uh, you know, if that doesn't look like God intervening, then I don't know what does. You know, at least that's Justinian's view. So you have this remarkable success, one that, as you just pointed out, is you know, goes against uh, this, you know, the, the, the previous uh, failures uh, to take over the territory. What was it that then leads Belisarius uh, and Justinian to focus upon uh, Italy? I think it's I think it's simply the level of their success. The, the sort of backstory to this is the way in which the Roman army had evolved in the late fifth and early sixth centuries. You can't tell exactly when it happened, but the end result of the military uh, evolution is clear enough when you look at the detail of. Um, Justinian's campaigns and how the army is being fought. Uh, There are several key developments. The most important is the way in which 
well, the way in which cavalry is equipped and trained. For fourth century Roman armies, the cavalry is basically a scouting force, and it tends to man the flanks to make sure that the heavy infantry can't be um, outmaneuvered. They can't get around the back of you. It's that, that kind of a job. It's still very secondary. There is a bit more cavalry than in the first and second century armies, but not a lot. And it's not strategically important if you look at, sorry, not tactically important on the battlefield if you look how battles are fought. Uh, Justinian's armies, the key elite striking force, are uh, heavy, i.e. armored cavalrymen who are equipped not only with lances and swords, but also with bows. And probably these reflex bows of the type that the Huns had employed, which can generate huge power from not a huge pull, and therefore can be used effectively by horsemen. Uh, that was combined with uh, a greater emphasis on and greater flexibility in using this type of cavalry with the infantry. Uh, and it's a complete military revolution. Uh, it is, it's a bit like the moment where the Germans uh, invent armored divisions uh, in the, in the late 1930s and throw them at the French and the British in 1940. You've never seen anything like it uh, and are simply not able to cope on the battlefield. They have no answer to the combined mobility and strike power of this force. So they find that when it comes to battle, uh, the vandals are using sort of 5th century military organization, uh, which, where your cavalry are basically lancers uh, or equipped with heavy sabers. Um, and they cannot cope with cavalry that has as much hitting power, but from a much greater distance. So the, there's one, one of the battles that Belisarius fights. The Vandals lose 700 men without even getting to grips with Belisarius' cavalry. And that's the advantage that it gives them. So they suddenly realize they've got this extraordinary tactical military advantage. Um, and the Goths of Italy operate with the same kind of 5th century army that the Vandals did. And they realize there's a chance. Um, um, so uh, it's a bit like finding, uh, I think, Western powers in the 1990s got a bit carried away with their capacity to win battlefield victories that was brought by their advanced technology and the East Romans suddenly find they're in the same position and they can't quite resist from using it. So you have this dramatic series of military successes. How does that play into Justinian's reign back in Constantinople? How, uh, what, how is he using these success, these victories to bolster his standing? And are they helping him in terms of achieving the other aspects of his agenda? Uh, no, absolutely, they do. I mean, the, it's, it's not kidding. I mean, the, if you think if you're, the whole of your state ideology says emperors are appointed by God, then nothing smells of divine approval more than victory on the battlefield. As there's a, a huge book on the subject, but you know, military victory is the prime imperial virtue because it's the thing that shows without doubt that this is an emperor chosen by God. The, the ideology always allowed for the fact 
that human beings could confuse the divinity's choice and mistakenly appoint the wrong person, but that would show up in outcomes. So if you appoint the wrong person, the rain ends into disaster. The sign of having made the right choice that we really managed to choose the um, God's choice this time, we interpreted the divine mind correctly, shows itself in terms of success. So, you know, in comes Justinian um, and conquers the Vandal Kingdom in six months. God is behind this reign. So what this does at home is uh, restore the credibility that had been shattered by defeat in Persia and then the Nica riot. And Justinian is able to push through all his plans, particularly the second part of his legal reforms, which are much more difficult, much more problematic. He has political capital to burn at this point. No one's going to stand in his way. Um, and he publishes um, his reformed Roman legal code uh, pretty much as soon as he hears about the capture of Carthage in North Africa. Uh, that licenses him basically to do what the hell he wants, and he proceeds to do it. It also makes him untouchable. There's no sign of political opposition to Justinian. Um, in After the victory is won by late 533, we don't hear of any kind of uh, resistance to Justinian for the next decade or so. And he sets about rebuilding Constantinople as well. You know, uh, basically everyone at this point realizes the regime is here to stay. And what you have to do is get on the right side of it. It is fascinating to, when I was reading that, the, the contrast, how in modern times so often victory will lead, uh, you know, it's then followed by leaders being tossed out of office. You know, Winston Churchill losing in 1945, George Herbert Walker Bush losing in 1992. And, and here, you, what you're seeing is, is the military victories are, are so much more important in terms of establishing the, uh, the, the right and the ability of the ruler to reign, even though he's not actually fighting the battles himself. No, that's right. It's, it's it's one of the interesting transformations that the Roman imperial office um, becomes one of uh, symbolically attracting divine favor so that your generals are victorious um, rather than being uh, a commanding general like Julius Caesar, for instance, had been. Um, so the ideology is a much more general one that the reign should be victorious rather than the emperors out there winning battles. Um, he is, of course, a little bit suspicious of his successful generals, particularly Belisarius. He keeps a close eye on him because um, uh, Belisarius is a possible contender some, somewhere down the line. So it's very clear that he, while um, faking and celebrating um, Belisarius' victories, he's uh, looking at him carefully all at the same time. He can't. He can't live with him. He can't live without him. In a sense, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. The, there's a point at which Belisarius is uh, becoming a bit too big for his boots. Um, but uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Now, the challenge, of course, that that uh, is that the that Justinian's undertaking with this conquest is that it's not necessarily resolving his strategic dilemmas it's expanding them and you see this later on when you when you uh in your, in your book when you're describing what's happening uh on both uh ends of the empire first with persia and then with what's happening in the west yes, yes you do i mean uh, it is very similar to what the western powers found um in iraq and again in afghanistan you know uh, a technological uh, military advantage allows you to conquer places but not 
necessarily then to put a whole new regime of governance in place of the one that you've destroyed. Uh, and so you find uh, problems uh, of revolt, rebellion, and new insurgencies uh, cropping up in um, North Africa and again in Italy. Uh, and at the same time, the Persians start to sniff uh, the opportunity. I mean, by the late 530s, to win the first phase of the Italian war, which Justinian apparently has done by about 539, he's had to transfer something like 25,000 or 30,000 men to Italy, including, and this is the key thing, these elite cavalry groups, of which there aren't that many. Um, we don't have any breakdown, but I suspect they're horrendously expensive to maintain and train and equip. So there are limited numbers. There are only a few thousand, maybe 10,000 total in the entire empire. And of them, at least three quarters or maybe a bit more are committed to the conquest in Italy by 539. So the Persians can see that there's a huge opportunity and they proceed to take it. So we get this huge Persian invasion unleashed in 540 on the Eastern Front. And uh, the Romans have nothing to combat it with. Justinian had to strip out the East to find the men to conquer Italy with. Uh, and the Persians can walk into many of the richest territories um, of the Eastern Empire in a way that hadn't happened since the 3rd century. Uh, they even sack and destroy Antioch, which is the second city of the empire. I mean, this is a colossal loss. So how does Justinian try to hold this, given that now he's in what you know, might be regarded as imperial overstretch? How does he you know, try to square his you know, newly expanded empire with the resources he has available? Uh, he basically then has to start shuffling his forces backwards and forwards between east and west. Uh, the east is the much bigger priority. And uh, as I said, Syria, Palestine... Egypt and Western Turkey, these are the key revenue-producing areas. The Persians don't get to Western Turkey or Egypt, but they are threatening Syria and Palestine. Um, and when you look at what the Persian uh, Shah and Shah, King of Kings, wanted, he wants cash. He's not really trying to conquer territory. He's extracting wealth. And he extracts it on a colossal scale from these uh, great ancient cities. Uh, of the region. So Justinian has to bring his, a lot of his forces back. He has to stabilize the situation on the Eastern Front uh, with the result that the insurgencies in Italy and North Africa uh, through the 540s are allowed to uh, grow largely untamed. I mean, again, if something really horrible happens in the West, Justinian reacts to it, but the East is given the priority in the 540s uh, until the Persian War finally uh, sort of grinds to a halt. And then in the late 540s and early 550s, Justinian can get enough resources free again uh, to wrap up the revolts um, in uh, North Africa and Italy. But, but Persia becomes the priority. It has to be the priority. I, I thought it was interesting. You describe his, this 
uh, effort later in his reign to establish his fortifications in places like Spain and, and the Danube region. And it, it's, it, it's almost like they're, they're kind of digging in for the long haul. And yet, as you describe, the, so much of that empire ends up turning out to be very ephemeral. Yes, it does. Of course, they don't know that. <laughs> this is the thing. Um, uh, he's following uh, a very well-established uh, strategy by the 6th century of uh, protecting uh, local communities. Uh, again, I think it's, a, it's largely about reaction time uh, within this uh, technologically very limited world. Uh, I always think that the uh, Roman Empire is a bit like the old image of the Brontosaurus. It didn't know it was being eaten for probably about half an hour before it got through to its brain. But when it did turn around and tread on you, then you really got trodden. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I think it's usually at least a year after an attack before any kind of remedial response in terms of central, centrally controlled military uh, support can be organized for a region. So you basically have to make local communities able to defend themselves in the short term against anything but really big threats um, because you, you can't move forces around that quickly. Uh, you know, it takes months before you know there's been an attack. It takes you some more months to organize the troops and all the supplies, the logistic chain of command that's required um, in order to mount an effective campaign. So it's, it's a, it's a defense is a complicated problem in this strategic context of the late empire where there are threats across the frontiers. Uh, and I think that's what makes it very different from the early empire when, you know, you're not facing that, that sort of level of threat. Therefore, you don't have to worry so much about local community defense and the fact that your reaction times are so slow. So given that circumstance, was the contraction that follows in the, uh, in the later 6th and 7th centuries inevitable? Or was there, or, or was it, uh, you know, were there other uh, possibilities that they explored that they didn't pursue that that might have been more successful? Well, I think that's the $64,000 question. Well, that's a bit outdated now. I have to add a few more notes <laughs> on the end of it um, about Justinian's reign. And the, the old idea is, is always that, uh, he created this imperial overstretch, um, and uh, that basically sets up the situation that's going to lead to catastrophic losses. Because by, uh, say, if we go forward about 100 years after Justinian's death to 650, then by that date, most of the Italian conquest has gone, the Balkans have been lost, and crucially, Syria, Palestine, and Egypt have been lost, and Western Asia Minor, Western Turkey, is a battleground between Byzantine and the new uh, Muslim powers, so it's lost its co productive capacity as well, and the smart money is that Constantinople loses something between two-thirds and three-quarters of its tax revenues. Um, from the time of Justinian compared to sort of 650 AD, which is a catastrophic level of contraction. Uh, and as the money was mostly spent on defense, then that's obviously going to have a um, huge impact on the, on the empire's strategic position. So, I mean, I think it's normally been taken for granted that this was largely caused by Justinian's conquests. 
Uh, in the end, I came to the view that, that I think that's wrong. I, I thought about it hard, of course, um, and I can see some of the sort of um, virtue in that line of argument. But uh, if you step back from it, there are two further strategic revolutions that are required to, to lead, uh, to generate all those losses. One is the arrival of a second powerful nomadic confederation, Huns Mark II, if you like, from across the steppe in the form of the Avars. And to blame Justinian for all the losses in Europe, and the Avars are indirectly caused the losses in Italy too by pushing the Lombards into Italy, you basically have to say that Justinian should have envisaged that the Avar confederation was going to arrive and build up, that they were going to be as big a threat as the Huns. And I think that that's a difficult argument to make. There's a bit more contingency. It's not easy to blame him for that, I think. Uh, but that pales into insignificance compared to the loss of the Near East, you know, the key heartland revenue-generating territories to rising Islamic power. And if you think about the causes of those losses, then the real cause of that is 50 years of superpower confrontation between Rome and Persia, starting in the 580s and running through to the 630s, which bankrupts both empires uh, and means that they don't keep any eye on what's happening out in Arabia, where Muhammad starts this extraordinary uh, religious political movement um, in the 620s, and which will generate these great conquests. And that head-on, all-out, knock-down conflict, which bankrupts both empires, creates the power vacuum within which Islamic expansion takes place. Well, you know, that starts 15 years after Justinian's death. He gives none of the orders for it. He's not responsible for it. Uh, and it slowly builds momentum through the contingent choices of emperors and shahs on both sides as they face the ongoing unfolding uh, of events. And again, I think it's tricky to say that that's in any direct, in any direct way caused by Justinian. The successor emperors could have made other choices in the context in which they operated, which would not have led to this unrestricted warfare, which is what then creates the context in which Islam can expand. And we really shouldn't blame Justinian for lacking clairvoyance in that sense. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I think it's really difficult to do that uh, when you step back and, and really think about how these events came about. It's hard to pin it on Justinian. The most I could come up with, really, was the thought that by being so successful militarily and showing uh, to the Constantinople political establishment what the political fruits of military victory actually were, making your reign so untouchable, being able to do what the hell you like, basically, in what had been a very difficult political context and still was, that uh, the most you can blame Justinian for is actually maybe uh, putting military gambling too high up the political agenda for his successors. Uh, I think that's about the most you can really blame him for. That's not nothing, but it doesn't take away from the contingent choices of his successors. 
Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Yes. <laughs> I'm working on another small project, uh, how and why Europe becomes Christendom in the period <laughs> 300 to 1300. <laughs> um, it's not totally unrelated to uh, the, the part of just of the Justinian book, the beginning part, where I'm thinking about the way that uh, the political culture of this reformed empire demands that landowners opt into its operations. Because I think the spread of Christianity amongst the Roman landowning elite uh, does follow on from the way that Roman public life works. So um, that part of the argument overlaps, at least. Well, it sounds like an excellent book. I look forward to reading it when it comes out. Uh, so do I. I'll be so pleased when it comes out. <laughs> <laughs> At the moment, I've got about three chapters left to do. So I'm oh, hoping to finish good. it this autumn. So we'll oh, good luck with that. Keep your fingers crossed for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 Peter Heather, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you very much. 